My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. You really are quite bright, despite what people say. Stuart, the boy reviewer. I'm a part of this whether you like it or not. And the clown prince of podcasting, Arnie. Has anybody ever told you you have a serious impulse control problem? Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the real game begins. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. Here we go. When does a story that sells a lot of toys become runner-up to a toy story? When it's Batman Forever, starring Val Kilmer, Tommy Lee Jones, Jim Carrey, Nicole Kidman, Chris O'Donnell, and directed by Joel Schumacher. I'm Arnie, your co-host of Now Playing, who's going to flip a coin on this recommend. Stuart in L.A. And this is the host that's both a summer and a winter, Jacob. And we are back in our Batman series that feels like it's going on forever after our Mask of the Phantasm bonus review. That's true. We had another surprise show for all those folks that felt like we were really not doing them all by not reviewing the theatrically released cartoon that came in between Batman Returns and this movie. Well, we did it. And now here we are at Batman Forever, kind of a soft reboot to the Batman franchise. Don't you guys think we've got a new director, a new actor? actor as Batman, a new style. If it wasn't for Commissioner Gordon and Alfred, what would this have in common with the previous ones? You know, I see it definitely split down the middle, just like Two-Face. You know, they started off by saying it's a Tim Burton production, and they got his name in the credits, but they only half want to honor what he's doing here. It's very clear to me that they are hoping to excise the Burtonishness 
of this Batman in this movie so that they can go and do what they really want to do with it. And I was very curious when I saw that Tim Burton produced this film. I remember how Brian Singer was a producer for X-Men First Class. He was very hands-on. So I wondered if really Burton had a say in this. Research showed that Burton's involvement was agreeing to not return and saying, yeah, the Schumacher guy will be fine. They had one meeting. He's like, yeah, sure, Schumacher. And that's how he got a producer's credit. (laughs) I figured the only hands-on Burton had here was getting his hands on a check. (laughs) And that's not just his doing. He went to Warner saying, I've got ideas for part three. And they're like, "Mm, so do we. And they don't include you. Who can blame him? From a studio perspective, Batman is more than a story. It is a whole mass market media blitz. And while I still think Batman Returns is an improvement upon Batman, I can see why you would not want to market that movie or any future vision like it towards children. I mean, this doesn't belong in a Happy Meal. Burton, you know, he's always skirted that edge between cute and macabre, and he went too far, and it was time for someone else to take over. You know, you mentioned from the studio perspective, what this reminds me of is when we were discussing Incredible Hulk coming after Ang Lee's Hulk, and how, Stuart, you felt, oh, they shouldn't really throw everything away with Ang Lee's Hulk, but I can understand how if you're trying to win back an audience that was turned away by the last installment, swinging the pendulum hard in the other direction to assure audiences this is going to be what you like may very well be the way to go. But... Did it work for this one? That's what we're here to discuss. Well, it didn't work for me initially. You know, I saw Batman Returns only at your insistence, Arnie. And by this point, when this movie came out, you and I weren't living in the same cities. I only saw it because there was a heat wave in Chicago and I had no air (laughs) condition. Believe it or not, that is the reason I saw Batman Forever. I would rather have the cool of the theater than to roast in my apartment. So that is why I endured it. Strangely, that's how I saw Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. (laughs) Did you suffer just as much, I wonder? (laughs) It didn't take a heat wave to get me to go see this. I mean, this was what the big movie of the summer another batman film i was there ready for it i'll talk about my reaction later on as we get into the film but i was there opening weekend what's funny for me is i was very lukewarm on batman at this point i'd kind of gone into a comics lull and that year i was just interested in other movies it was a couple of weeks that batman forever had been out it was doing really good business i was always a fan of val kilmer so i did go and see it and even though it had been out a couple weeks i remember the theater being pretty full. We'll talk about my reaction, but that is how I saw it, going in with almost no expectations and virtually no desire to see it. I was ready to wait for video. That's hard for me to imagine given how hopped up you were for returns, but that one really burned you then, I guess. What was the hesitancy? It was partially afraid of getting more of that, and it was partially having really moved on in film taste since 92. By the time you hit 95, I was all about indie cinema. Well, as far as Indie goes like Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino, it should be said, put out Pulp Fiction the year before, and all Hollywood entertainment felt like it had just been spun on its head by that point. I mean, kids were watching gritty, grimy, indie stuff, big, slick Hollywood movies. Eh, 
yeah, this felt like kid stuff, and you were an adult now. That definitely was where I was at, and I didn't see most Hollywood movies that summer. And, you know, if I was going to boycott Batman Returns, I felt even more strongly about Batman Forever. Eh, they got me. Honestly, the movie I remember being most excited for in 95 was Get Shorty. So that tells you where my film taste had gone. But I did end up seeing a lot of movies that summer, including this one, and I'll spill the beans. I walked out of there surprisingly happy, thinking I enjoyed the movie I saw, and do I still feel that way many years later, I guess, is what we'll really discuss. Well, I'll spill the beans a little bit too then, Arnie, because I walked out of this, you know, you guys talked about your movie taste changing, and yeah, we all go through that as we get older, and this may have been the movie where I said, hmm, I should probably pay more attention to those indie films. I started getting into instead of these big slick Hollywood ones. I was mortified. Whatever my misgivings about the previous two Batman movies at the time, I thought that they had really screwed the pooch because everyone in the theater seemed to be thinking that it was just fine with them. I was appalled. So if I'd been in the theater with you, you would have been appalled at me. <laughs> Probably so. Let's see if we can recreate that now. I'm sure you've been appalled with me many times <laughs> and now playing. This will not be the first. It won't be the first. But before we do any of that, let's give them a plot. Arnie? Do you want the real plot, or should I give you the Joel Schumacher plot of bright colors and vivid descriptions? Or would you like the threadbare story that weaves its way through the movie? Uh-oh, somebody's been listening to too many director's commentaries. Just give me what happened. Batman, now played by Val Kilmer, continues to patrol the streets of Gotham City, and his current fight is against Harvey Two-Face, a former DA who turned insane when a mob boss threw acid on his face. Harvey blames Batman for not protecting him, so he has decided to take out his vengeance by killing Batman, though he's always split on his opinions, so he allows a coin flip to decide the ultimate fate. When not fighting Two-Face and his gang, Batman is also being pursued, or you could say chased, by Chase Meridian, a criminal psychologist who has joined Gotham's police force and is attracted to bad boys like the Batman. As billionaire Bruce Wayne, the Caped Crusader is interested in Chase, even though Chase is after his masked alter ego, but she still agrees to accompany him to a charity circus, a circus that Two-Face is targeted. <laughs> is it the words charity circus in the same <laughs> sentence that got you there? Yes, yes it really is. <laughs> That's what it is, it, though. I know, and that it would be a target for any terrorist. It's, just, it's great. Wait, wait, wait. It's a charity circus with the wealthiest people in Gotham. How could it not be? <laughs> we'll get into it. Mm. Assuming one of the upper-crust Gothamites attending the charity event knows Batman's true identity, or perhaps is Batman, Two-Face brings in 200 sticks of TNT, which he will detonate if Batman isn't revealed. In the chaos, Harvey can't hear Bruce shouting that he is Batman, and Bruce cannot get to the bomb in time. But the famed acrobats, the Flying Graysons, teamed up using their trapeze skills to take the bomb out the ceiling while Harvey isn't looking. The Graysons do get the bomb out, but most of the family fall to their death while trying, leaving only young Dick the sole survivor. Bruce takes newly orphaned Dick in as a boarder in exchange for motorcycle repair, but Dick is focused only on getting revenge on Two-Face for the death of his family, a grudge that's all too familiar for Bruce. And speaking of revenge, also out for revenge is Edward Nigma, former Wayne Enterprises employee. Nigma developed 
The Box, a genius though poorly named television-like device that provides a fully immersive holographic experience for the viewer by beaming information directly into the viewer's brains. He took the invention to Bruce, but Bruce denied the device, citing ethical concerns, and this breaks Nigma's already fractured mental state, so Nigma attacks his boss and forces the manager to watch the box, which is when Nigma learns the box can feed information from the viewer's brain directly into Nigma's, making him even more intelligent and more crazy. He kills his boss, then teams up with Two-Face, having Two-Face pull criminal heists to fund Nigma's invention, and Nigma takes on the persona of the Riddler and starts leaving clues for Wayne. Finally, through the box, Riddler learns that Bruce Wayne is Batman and that he and Two-Face share the same enemy, so they team up to not only kill, but humiliate Batman. Meanwhile, Dick, living in the mansion, doing kung fu with wet laundry, and knowing Wayne has secrets, discovers the Batcave and Bruce's identity. Dick wants to be Batman's partner to take on Two-Face, but Bruce is resistant, not wanting a homicidal partner. Harvey and Riddler attack Wayne Manor on Halloween night and blow up the Batcave, kidnapping Chase and shooting Bruce in the head, but not killing him. And when Bruce awakens, he knows he needs help to fight two enemies. Alfred gives Dick his own suit, a Robin suit from his circus nickname, and Batman and Robin go after Two-Face and Riddler. Robin is taken captive, and Batman must make a choice, save Chase or Robin, but Batman blows up Riddler's box antenna, frying Nigma's brain, and saves both. Then in a final confrontation with Two-Face, Harvey tries to flip his coin to see if Batman should live or die, and Batman throws a handful of fake coins as well, and while trying to catch his real coin, Two-Face falls from a high beam to his death, and Batman and Robin run towards the future as partners. And when the movie started, the thing that struck me most, and that I didn't remember, is they didn't just get rid of Tim Burton, they just didn't get rid of Michael Keaton, they got rid of Danny Elfman and his entire iconic Batman score. It's true, Elliot Goldenthal. You know, it's a changing of the guard, this was a new guy, he worked on Alien 3 and would end up doing a lot of Julie Taymor productions. But yeah, I actually found myself liking this music, I think I've heard it maybe in a lot of toy commercials or something. I found it to be very Batman for me, and yet it still had some of the same haunting overtones, but I was really surprised the iconic Tim Burton refrain never popped up anywhere in the score. It seems like that's something you'd want to have to keep cohesion between your series. I don't think you get Schumacher if you want cohesion between a series. It felt close enough, though. It wasn't like they had gone for something entirely different. Indeed, this feels like a split down the middle. They still want it to feel like it's part of the universe that happened the last time, only now there's bold primary colors, and there's faster pace. We get to Batman. You know, it had been dominated by the villains, and who was Batman? He was the guy skulking around his mansion. Well, now they start the movie. First thing first, it's Batman. Or at least his crotch. (laughs) I mean, come on! It's in the first five seconds of this movie. All its gratuitous uh, sexual overtones. Here, they're just going to film a two-hour commercial where they could cut about any line into a promo. Yeah, I remember that ad, but Have you seen the new Batmobile? There is no way that with those giant fins on the back, that thing is going to make the clearance to get through a drive-thru. Starting it this way, you might not even notice if you came to this as an unsophisticated unknowing. I don't know that you would even notice that there's a new Batman guy going on. There's so much stimulus happening, butt shots and cod pieces at the start of this. I mean, they're so eager to whip you into a new adventure, maybe they're even hoping that you don't notice that it's not Keaton, but it's Kilmer. 
Were they trying to gently ease us into this? I don't think that was an asset, right? I don't think that they were happy about the fact that Keaton didn't return. Did they want him to return? There were talks. He was not necessarily thrown out. There were a lot of talks. And then finally, after boiling through all the PRBS that I've read, he basically asked for too much money and they said, forget it. So they got Val Kilmer, which to me at the time was a step up. As much as I liked Mr. Mom and Gung Ho and Johnny Dangerously, I never really connected with Keaton, and I was a big Val Kilmer fan. The Doors being a big reason why, Top Gun, Top Secret, Real Genius, where I first found Val Kilmer. Love that movie. To see him here... He seemed like somebody who'd always been famous, but never been superstar, and I thought this was going to be his ticket. Yeah, add to that mix that he had just done a problematic picture for Warner Brothers called Tombstone. They were like, well, this guy needs to be Tom Cruise. He had been with Cruise back a decade prior with Top Gun, and they'd never had the same level of success. This was the movie they thought that could put him in the driver's seat. I usually enjoyed him, even if I didn't like the movies he was in. Like Tombstone, I enjoyed his role. Don't care much for the movie. Real genius. Uh, great film. This is not Val Kilmer, though, is it? <laughs> this is a different person in this film. Well, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Mr. Kilmore here because he is having to give a Michael Keaton performance with Adam West lines. I mean, he really is handled a very bad script, and I don't feel like anyone could say some of this dialogue and not turn crimson. It's embarrassing, really. I don't know. When we get into some of the other characters, I think they pull off these bad lines really well, uh, especially Nicole Kidman. But Kilmer, like, whatever. When he's Batman, he does come off Keaton-esque. But when he's Bruce Wayne... This guy's a bored. He's a mannequin. No personality. I think there's no personality in both. I'll be honest, though. It took the entire movie for me to get to that point. In the beginning, I was kind of okay on his Batman. I thought it was fine, whatever, not great, a little wooden. But I was liking his early Bruce Wayne stuff when he's touring Wayne Enterprises, things like that. And when he's first flirting with Chase, I was liking those scenes. It was basically the circus and after when all of a sudden it felt like he was in a trance. It's like he never came down from the doors peyote and he was just reading the lines. He's a really weird dude. And, you know, even though he wouldn't go on to make Batman and Robin, you know, and maybe dodge that bullet, he didn't take long to before he imploded with The Saint and Island of Dr. Moreau. He got a rep, probably starting with this movie, throwing tantrums on set, being a very difficult, just not a team player. And consequently, I think that this may be the pinnacle of his commercial success. I think it was a steep decline after this. I agree. I thought that when we were recording this podcast, I'd say the last time I saw him was in MacGruber, the movie. I actually met Val Kilmer just a few weeks ago. He was at Chicago, C2E2. I got my Real Genius DVD signed. Oh, cool. That's a worthy selection of, of Kilmer's work to get signed. I had a little bit of Wisdom of the Stairs wishing I'd also taken up Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It was $40 a signature, though, so... Mm, Real Genius was certainly my number one. He's kind of a weird dude. He's lost a little weight. He's not looking as bad as he did in MacGruber. But he talked like he was playing Jim Morrison. <laughs> Didn't he play Jim Morrison? He did play Jim Morrison, which is why I was able to peg it. We put Real Genius in front of him. He goes, people in Chicago really like Real Genius. It's a silly movie. 
Not as silly as him playing Mark Twain. He's been doing that for the last couple months in L.A. I haven't gone to the show. I, I won't pay money for it, but I'm intrigued. If any listener has seen the Val Kilmer Mark Twain post about it, I want to know. That's what he was promoting there. It was the only official merchandise he was selling was the poster. He did talk a little bit in a panel about Batman and said he signed on thinking that they'd be making the kind of movies that Nolan ended up making. Hmm. Did he read the script? Well, he thought if there were sequels, <laughs> there were with him. But he must be on a tour, Arnie, because he did a little, little comic convention out here in Dallas as well with Adam West. I mean, they got uh, some of the other Batman people, but he was out of the modern ones. He was it. Yeah, You don't see Michael Keaton falling to those depths. But here... Yeah, I went in a Kilmer fan and I walked out going, well, it was Val Kilmer and I like Val Kilmer. I appreciate him in this movie as a point of grounding. Everyone else is so over the top in this movie. It's refreshing that someone is still trying to do something that isn't bombastic. I mean, if they had gotten another lunatic to scream and chortle in this, I don't think I could have taken this movie. So I actually will give Kilmore props. I think he is the most successful actor in this film. I think you're being very generous, Stuart, saying that he is acting or, or grounding this film. He is a piece of wood. He is a plastic mannequin throughout this film. If this is what he thinks Adam West was doing with Camp and Batman 66, take another semester of, of your acting school it's bad he is a wooden board throughout this film i don't think he's trying to do adam west i think he is definitely trying to continue the keaton mold i think adam west is the furthest thing from his mind because he didn't want to go down that road where adam west was signing autographs at conventions here's the problem though michael keaton he does have comic timing even though batman batman returns they were not comedic films he has those elements he has that timing we talked about in the charity scene in batman you know where he's dropping the pen and the cup and alfred's got like those little moments he has that timing kilmer does not have that timing i hope we don't hear about him trying to do some stand-up thing that goes horribly wrong in a few years jacob i totally agree with you i think it's predominantly an interchangeable performance with keaton but for that big difference is that every now and then Keaton would be sly and wink at you and be just slightly funny. He would just step beyond that wooden visage and let you know I can play game here too. Kilmore is just truly, he took a pill. He's trying to get through this. He is trying to walk through this with his dignity intact. And it worked. This isn't the movie that took his dignity. The same cannot be said for our Oscar-winning nemesis, the first villain he should encounter in this opening heist. Is that what's going on here? It's a bank and a skyscraper? Uh, what does Batman stumble into at this point? Well... If you see the cutscenes on the DVD, it's Two-Face has just broken out of Arkham with the idea of getting Batman. So this is all bat bait to get Batman lured in. The way I took it in all the times I've seen the movie before the cutscene is Two-Face is off on another job and Batman starting him kind of like the way he was fighting that crazy circus in the last one. Sure, he's trying to get Batman, but he also calls out that he wants the money in this vault that slides out of a bank, which seems counterintuitive for what you want a vault to do. <laughs> yes, particularly since it's empty, even though he's airlifting it out and filling it with acid. I have no idea what's going on, but that's the least of the problems I have with it. Tommy Lee Jones should have his Oscar revoked and cudgeled with it by Jack Nicholson for this pathetic performance. The worst thing about this movie 
is Tommy Lee Jones. Disagree. Yeah, I disagree. I have to say, I am going to give Tommy Lee Jones credit for putting on that silly looking mask and just cutting loose. I mean, he's still Tommy Lee Jones. He's just Tommy Lee Jones on speed. He is all over the place. He commits to this performance. And while I think the success of that committing may depend a lot on your definition of humor, (laughs) I personally am riveted anytime this man is on screen. Riveted? Well, what happened to Billy D? God knows he was the one promised this role. This should have been Billy D, right? Not that I think he would have done any better, but... Now, I'm not one to throw the R word out lightly, but does anyone else think racism that Joel Schumacher took both black actors cast as Robin and Two-Face and replaced them with white guys? Was it him, though, or is it the Hollywood machine? I, I feel Hollywood's afraid of offending the people that are going to buy their toys, and they want to keep it just like you remember it from 1950. Maybe it's afraid of changing things, but he was the casting person on this and the next one. He single-handedly picks his actors and then pursues the living hell out of them, hounding whoever it takes to get them cast. So the fact that the studio already had to pay Billy D and already had to pay Marlon Wayans, they still replaced him with two white guys. And it made me realize there's not a single black actor in this movie. <laughs> That's not fair. I-, I believe that the assistant to Wayne, Margaret, she's very important to his daily tasks. <laughs> I think she gets him some coffee. You get two <laughs> women who are polar opposites. One's light, one's dark, and neither is black. All I'm saying is there's no black people here, and I'm not one who usually takes offense at these types of things, but the fact that they got rid of black people to bring in white people, that's a little harsh. That's a little hard to ignore. Particularly when the money is already spent, and now you're paying them to go away. (laughs) But I will say this. Tommy Lee Jones at this point is a bigger star than Billy Dee Williams is. In fact, I don't know that Billy Dee Williams was even working in 1995. In 1995, he is still got the two-year glow from The Fugitive and had worked with Schumacher on that John Grisham movie, The Client. So there was a reason to believe that Schumacher would have a better time working with him on this project. That said, also, I remember when the first Batman movie came out, they started doing their dream casting for future movies, and they had one person per movie. They never expected multiple villains, and... Who would you think of as Two-Face? They had Billy D. Cast, so I think you'd go to him. But if you were looking at the Hollywood landscape, it's not like there's anyone who's like, yes, that person is Two-Face. Well, let me get to it then. Who is Two-Face? As someone that only knows Batman from the TV show, I don't think this character ever made it onto that. I don't think I know who this person was before he was in this movie. Yeah, this is the, maybe not only, but probably the most prominent villain from the comic books that didn't make it into Batman 66 because they thought he was too scary with this acid covered face rotting away. It was just too scary for the kids at the time. I don't know. Egghead was pretty damn scary when I was four. (laughs) You can't tell me that this is the way that the character behaves in the comic, right? Personally, I think this is a complete mischaracterization of Two-Face. Two-Face is this tragic character. He's someone that can't make decisions. I don't buy that Tommy Lee Jones' Two-Face 
does not want to make the bad decision. That's what he constantly wants to do. He wants to flip that coin as many times as possible till he gets the scarred side up so he could shoot someone. I don't think this is a conflicted person at all. Whereas in the comic book, yes, he is. He has to flip that coin. That is the only way he can make a decision in his life. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, later in the movie, Batman has to remind him, oh, hey, before you shoot me, aren't you supposed to flip a coin? If it's part of your defining characteristic, you're not going to forget to flip the coin. I mean, say what you will about DeVito. I do feel like he made his own tragic character. A spun off from what Nicholson did in Joker. Obviously, that is the boilerplate they will go back to again and again. There's always going to be a Joker-type villain for Batman to fight because Joker is the real nemesis for Batman. But that said, uh, this is a pathetic attempt to emulate that. I mean, they didn't even try to do something original with this. This is Joker lines in an entirely different character. And we don't even really get a origin story for this villain. We talked about the other Batman films, how they're more about the villains, and they spent so much time setting up the bad guys here. He's just literally in the what, first five, ten minutes, he's on the screen. We get like a three-second flashback, a little news report shot from, you know, in a court, but with Hollywood setups for the cameras, it's kind of odd. It's like they went to the set of L.A. Law. Yeah. We really don't get a story for this character who I really think is Shakespearean. I guess we'll get to explore that later in this retrospective. But here, it's just a, a very flashy version of Two-Face. It's all about the pimped-out zebra-striped suits. Listen, I'm glad we didn't get much more of his origin for many reasons. First of all, we have not one but two origin stories already going on. Possibly three, because I can dare say Batman is being told an origin story here. Second of all, in that courtroom scene... You see Batman leaping over the banister to rescue Harvey from the acid. Seeing Batman in a well-lit courtroom looked silly. And what would be even sillier is seeing him sitting in the pews of the courthouse just waiting for the verdict. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was definitely laughing as this rolled by, yes. All of the backstory we're ever going to get is, yes, some mobster threw acid on him while he was testifying against him? Well, I don't, I don't even know, but Batman was a witness to it, and the acid ate into his brain and caused him to go crazy and be a criminal. That is what it is. Paper kept half of his face uh, <laughs> from... Acid doesn't eat through paper. No, it takes a little bit longer to go through paper. This is why I I always keep my paper shield at my desk in case some acid-wielding madman goes by. <laughs> just remember, whole face, not half. <laughs> I just feel like there must be a cooler story to this character. Uh, something about duality. They want to play with these themes. Burton has always been in these themes of crazy and good guy and bad guy and sanity. I feel like he would make an excellent character, but I've never heard of him before. They don't care to explain who he is, and then he's portrayed by this over-the-hill gas bag. I hate him. (laughs) I was liking Tommy Lee Jones. I still like Tommy Lee Jones. I'm liking the performance. I didn't know Two-Face. I think I might have seen him in one episode of the cartoon, but I wasn't really a watcher of that cartoon. So he was new to me as well, and I was fine with him here. Although, if the courtroom scene didn't take me back to Batman 66, I was certainly thinking Batman 66 a lot with Two-Face, because he has his goons who went down to the shop and got split down the middle matching outfits, and he just has this army of goons that come from nowhere, seem to want nothing. They're just there to reinforce him. They're like video game minions, and I'm like, this is just like Batman 66 here. Or Batman 89, where (laughs) the Joker goons had embroidered jackets. 
jackets. But furthermore, they got neon guns. Everything's neon here. Senseless neon. Why Why would you <laughs> put neon on a Tommy gun? Because it looks cool. You know what? I'm not going to say that this movie looked bad. I think that it was a style. I prefer Burton's. I mean, that last movie, particularly when it was projected, it almost looked monochromatic. I mean, it was almost a black and white movie. I don't think that they're wrong to splash it up a little. If they wanted to make a more Blade Runner neon kind of dark, then I'm fine with that. I have no problem with the art direction in this movie. I've always liked the visual style of this movie. And if you start picking it apart, why do you put neon on guns? You've already lost it. I mean, you're dealing with something that comes from a comic book. And I could pick up any superhero comic and point to a panel and go, why is that there? Well, because it looks good. It's art. You're putting words and art together. Well, here, that's what they're trying to recreate. And I do really like the look of this film. It's a totally different Gotham City than we saw before. It reminds me almost of like a stepping stone by way of the funny pages between what Tim Burton did and Blade Runner. It's all very vertical. It's all very neon. And yeah, I gotta say that one of the big reasons that this movie is working for me at this point is just the pure look. Let's face it, this is a Joel Schumacher film. You can say whatever you want about them, but they're always pretty. The man came from window decorating. That's literally his first occupation. I think he probably should have stuck with that. I don't think he has much of a storytelling sense, but yeah, no one would deny that he doesn't have a visual flair, and I've seen him apply it to ruin many a movie. Now he's here with Batman. I don't want to get stuck on the neon guns. It. What My point is that when I first saw this, and even watching it, this is the first time I've seen this film since I originally saw it in the theater. It's such a stark contrast from what we got with Burton. I could see the little building blocks. I could see the evolution, how we've gotten from Batman 89 to this with the architecture and with some of the subtle colors, but it's a shock to the system. If you're a fan of those Burton films, I got to wonder how this one's going to set with you. And I know how it's set with me after seeing it. Here's the thing. I didn't mind the look. What I hated was the feel. What I hated was the breakneck editing of the picture. The whole story feels like it's being passed to us like a baton in a relay race. I mean, literally, people are running up to us winded, being like, okay, okay, I mean, I can't even tell what's going on. I feel like this thing is an assault. And that is what I am reacting to very early on to this. I can tell you the moment, the moment that my spine twisted and never uncurled is the introduction of Chase Meridian. They come in with this crane flying down and the wind's blowing their hair and she whips around. And I think that if this is their idea of introducing a character, stop this carousel, I want off. (laughs) I gotta say that none of the camera movements or anything really bothered me till basically the very end of the movie. That's when I finally had enough of this ride. But Chase Meridian, you know, I really admire how Nicole Kidman looks in this movie. I said everything Schumacher does is beautiful, and Nicole Kidman certainly fits that bill. She's glamorous without being any good. At this point, it should be reminded of everyone that she is Mrs. Tom Cruise. Nicole Kidman has not established herself with international audiences as a very big star. Uh, it would come later this year. She, I think her breakthrough truly was to die for. She started being thought of as a real actress after that point. But up until that point, she was the girl that Tom Cruise was with. I gotta say, this is one of the bright points for the movie. Not just because how Nicole Kidman looks, but she takes some of the worst lines. We talked about how Kilmer just couldn't deliver these lines. 
she just runs with it. Like her role in this movie is to talk about how much she wants to bang Batman. <laughs> you know what? I believe her talking about black rubber. And I kind of appreciate, you know, Arnie, you say you like Tommy Lee just going with it with Two-Face. I like how much Nicole Kidman just takes this stupid Chase Meridian character and just runs with it. Yeah, because she's a kickboxing psychologist who likes bad boys who aren't bad like Two-Face, but are bad like Batman. And she has been brought in by Commissioner Gordon, what? To give a academic profile of Two-Face as he's robbing a bank? I mean, <laughs> how is this even helpful? To have her psychologically break down a criminal as he's ripping them off, not even in custody. It's the second worst thing in the movie. I know you want to give credit to her for getting through it. I just pity her. This is a horrible role. She is horrible in it. I got to agree. She's miserable in this. She's supposed to be conflicted. Do I like Bruce Wayne? Do I like Batman? To me, she constantly looked like she was easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl. It was all about hair flipping. I felt like every time she was on screen, she was tossing her bangs. It was absolutely ridiculous. It made me miss Vicki Vale, for Christ's <laughs> sake. I mean, forget Catwoman. I mean, this is where we're at. I'm wanting Kim Basinger back. Is Chase Meridian from the comics? Nope. Made up for this movie. I actually felt she almost fulfilled the Vicky Vale role. You know, she's not a news reporter here, but Vicky Vale, she, she was like Lois Lane, where she, you know, wants Superman, but Clark Kent wants Lois. I mean, that's how it was with Vicky Vale. She wants Batman. Bruce Wayne wants Vicky. You get this weird bipolar love triangle going on. And, and I felt this was almost more true to the Vicky Vale character. Yeah, but I almost felt like she should put on a chastity belt and suit up by the end of this, too. You know, she's the superhero cock tease. You know, she wants what she can't have. She doesn't want the rich millionaire Bruce Wayne. Billionaire now. He's gone up. Oh, yes. But <laughs> when Batman is coming to her on her porch, she's like, oh, no, you know, actually, there's somebody else in my life. I mean, how can she choose between the wealthy rich guy and the mythical superhero guy? I mean, I hate this character. <laughs> I really resent that she is the one that we're supposed to identify with. She's the commoner amid all of these larger-than-life personalities, and she's She's the least one I can relate to. And she sleeps naked and still turns away a guy who she invited to her apartment at midnight. <laughs> and she also sets off the bat signal in lingerie. How could you not like Chase Meridian? What a grand pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pursue her, but I wouldn't respect myself in the morning if this is the conversations. I just love, love, love that when she's kickboxing and punching, she's all out of breath. Oh my God, I've worked so hard. There's not a bead of sweat. There's not a hair out of place. <laughs> Joel Schumacher specialty there. Yeah, nobody ever breaks a sweat. Jim Carrey does. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about the worst part of this movie? Or the best. Either way you want to go on there. <laughs> I gotta say, love Jim Carrey in Living Color. When I was in high school, I really liked Ace Ventura. It's been a while since I've revisited that film. Loved him in that, though. This is where I said, screw this guy. This is where I turned against Jim Carrey in this movie. He was the guy of the moment. I mean, they really lucked out here because this was supposed to be Robin Williams, right? And God knows, Robin Williams had already been passed over for Joker. He's like, well, I gotta be Riddler. If they're not gonna give me Joker, they'll give me Riddler. Hell. And then this guy comes one year before they shoot this and produces his Ace Ventura mask and Dumb and Dumber and he's the guy they have to get and who is Robin Williams? There's several things to that. First of all, yes, I completely agree with you. I'm a huge Robin Williams fan. I loved him, especially at this point in time before he did a lot of other direct. And when people were saying Robin Williams was 
pegged for Riddler since 89, I was all for that. And when I heard Jim Carrey got it, I'll admit there was some backlash on my part. I liked Ace Ventura more than I ever thought. I refused to see it. I didn't like him on In Living Color. I refused to see Ace Ventura. Finally, I heard so many good things. I watched it, and in spite of my wanting to hate it, I loved that movie. Didn't care for The Mask, but I was just so upset it wasn't Robin Williams. Now, in my research for this, the scriptwriters had Robin Williams in mind. This part was written for Robin Williams. Joel Schumacher said the only person he wanted was Jim Carrey, who he knew since before Once Bitten. But, <laughs> yeah, but according to Robin Williams' people, he was approached, and he said... Screw you, you guys used me as bait saying you had me to convince Nicholson to get the part, so I'm not doing your crappy movie. Well, props to that. I mean, he would go on to do Flubber, so I don't know who won in that argument, but yeah, he didn't need this. But Jim Carrey sure did. This was the pinnacle of his fame at this point. That After the Triple Crown of 1994, this was the big payday. I mean, this was him becoming the megastar. So they really caught him at just the right moment. Personally, I would have cast Sean Young. You know, you want a stalker. Who better than that? But oh well, she'll get her due one day. <laughs> you know what hit me, though, watching Jim Carrey's performance here? Way back over a year ago, we were watching Generation X, and you guys were telling me how much Matt Frewer was channeling Jim Carrey. Mm. And I hadn't seen Batman Forever in forever at that point. Seeing this, I'm like, not only did Matt Frewer just rip this off, but he did a pretty damn good job of it. <laughs> and go back and listen to that review to see how he reacted to him. <laughs> just don't go back and watch that movie. <laughs> You know what? There's nothing surprising about this performance. Jim Carrey is doing Jim Carrey exactly as you would imagine in a green spandex question mark outfit. I mean, I felt like there was absolutely not one moment in this movie where I saw him doing something unexpected. It is connecting dots here. It is an obvious, silly, broad, way too much performance. You know, he even says at one point, I never know if I'm overdoing it. I'm like, that's for sure. I don't even know if that was said in or out of character. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like it is neither the worst nor the best thing in this movie. It is exactly what you would expect. But already having someone like this with Two-Face, having another person, this really becomes a contest about who can cackle the loudest. Why did they pair Two-Face and Riddler? What about these two characters goes in sync. I mean, I felt like in Batman Returns, Catwoman and Penguin, the, you know, cats and birds, there's a little interplay there. And the, the uneasy ally, you know, they weren't best friends that wanted to, you know, rob banks together. They didn't like each other, but they were going to trust each other to get the mutual goal done, to kill Batman. Here, Riddler wants something entirely differently than what Two-Face wants. I think the motivation here is... Riddler is after Bruce Wayne. Two-Face is after Batman. Now, as for why they picked the characters they picked, I really think they went to the Batman villain generator. Boop, 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 boop. Riddler. Two-Face, write a script. I think they had it gone with Riddler because they wanted to get back to Nicholson, the Joker. The way they play Riddler here isn't that far off from the Joker. And that, no. that's not, again, in the comics, the Riddler's 
a much more serious character. He's not cackling and yelling joygasm as he blows up the Batcave with little birdie bombs. That seems much more Joker to me than what we get with the Riddler here. Yeah, this is Frank Gorshin. It should be said. They wanted to do all of the bad guys that we remembered from the TV series. Well, they'd done the other three. Riddler was the last one. I know why they did Riddler. Two-Face is a mystery to me, and I just don't see what they have in common. You saying that Arnie is interesting, I do not get any of that in this movie, but that would be a way to write it, that if one wanted Batman and one wanted Bruce Wayne, well, that is playing with a duality that they're constantly juggling with. I like that conceptually, but not in execution. I mean, the fact is, when you have Two-Face using the club on a helicopter, you've got two wacky villains, and that's one too many. You should have more differentiation than ones in spandex and ones in latex. Absolutely. And Jim Carrey, let's face it, if you're going to do broad comedy, he's so much better than Tommy Lee Jones is at it. I mean, this is his forte. This is what he did every week on In Living Color. He can move his body, he can contort and be the living cartoon. Tommy Lee Jones, I can't imagine that he didn't face the day without a stiff drink. You know what, though? I think some scenes where Tommy Lee Jones was alone early on in the movie, I do feel like he may be trying to give the best performance he can, but look at himself like, what the hell am I doing? This isn't who I am. But when he is sharing the screen with Carrie, I get that he and Carrie are like riffing and having fun. And I really think when Carrie was around, it actually enhanced Tommy Lee's performance because he's now not the only crazy asshole on the screen. And I really like Tommy Lee with Carrie. The two of them together... I don't know. It has a DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince kind of vibe to me. <laughs> but with white people. <laughs> There's no, no black. black people in Gotham. You bring up the Fresh Prince, I'm thinking Men in Black, where you have the comedian and you have the straight man. Here you have two comedians. I mean, we've seen Tommy Lee Jones play the straight man. I, I thought he does that really well, playing off of Will Smith. I think that would have been a better direction to go instead of having just two crazy assholes throughout this entire film. I would have been more than okay with Two-Face being a threatening, low-key, tragic figure like you described. Playing it more like Penguin than Jack Nicholson, I think, would have been the way to go. I mean, I think he could have been lecherous and scary and not trying to make punchlines. The over-eagerness to always remind you that he's split in half. And if you didn't notice that, then he's got two girlfriends and his sofa's split in half. The whole apartment, as I think Jim Carrey describes it, it's home and garden meets heavy metal. Uh, you know, every joke is the same. It would have been better if it was home and garden meets guns and ammo, by the way. It's just not a very good joke. I don't know. You know what? The Riddler's plot, conceptually... I could kind of go with because it kind of reminds me of, well, what's worked in the past for me, which is Joker products. You know, he wants to get a consumer product out there that's going to rip off Gotham City, I think. Now, I'm not sure exactly what's positive or negative about his 3D TV, but that's the hook into his world and what he wants. It's very clear to me that he's an understandable character because Bruce Wayne, his idol, rejects his passion project. I remembered him being a normal guy who breaks. No, he's bug nuts crazy from the very first scene. Bruce, I think I deserve an answer now. Bruce was going to look at it. Bruce was going to put some time on his calendar. And we know Bruce Wayne doesn't lie because he's a hero. So he was nuts from the very beginning, which I think undermines his character arc a little. Yeah, this is a guy that has a Riddler bobblehead and a Riddler fortune telling machine in his apartment. Like, we can't be that surprised when this guy goes crazy. That 
explain that to me. Why does he already have Riddler gear, then is searching for an identity? I, mean, I don't know! After he's done riddles! This makes no sense. Yeah, but maybe he just didn't want to fall into that. It's like, if I choose to rob a bank, do I really want to dress like Darth Vader, or do I want to try to be a little more unique? And he just finally was like, ah, I'll dress like Vader, why not? I got the outfit here already. Arnie, don't rob a bank. <laughs> <laughs> Now, why is it called the box? It looks like a blender to me, but <laughs> it is a blender with some aquarium rocks in it. Yeah. And neon. There's got to be neon. All neon piping. No doubt about it here. But he gets to try it out on his mean boss. Ed Begley Jr., by the way. Barely recognizable. Yeah. That fake stash. That's all it took. And not being able to pick him out of a lineup. <laughs> yeah, that and him being already fairly obscure, other than for saying elsewhere watchers and, and cat people fans. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, they do that cool thing where he he really is the character that allows us to understand what happens with the box. The fish come out, and then he reels them back in. He's the fisherman in the TV, so what is the interplay here? I know that Bruce is concerned that it could be used for mind control, but its actual application is to take people's thoughts and to feed it into Ed, right? I mean, Ed's just basically combing people for their darkest secrets, so that he can be omnipotent and use it against them, I presume, to be rich. Yes, he calls out he wants to steal credit card numbers. That's his ultimate plan, which you do with an internet connection. But this was before the internet. <laughs> but here's the thing. That wasn't his original plan. Like, originally, he just wanted to make a fancy 3D television without having to buy the expensive television. You just get the box. And he accidentally finds out that you could steal their brain power, but it doesn't make the person stupid afterwards. Like, they're still normal but you're smarter all of a sudden. Like, I don't get this. How does that harm, really? Ultimately, I feel that's where our culture is heading. I mean, everyone's into this whole transparent living. I mean, Facebook, all of this. People want to share their whole lives online. I mean, that's really, in this day and age, it's not really understandable. Hi, welcome to our podcast. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's a Gen X problem, but it doesn't make any sense nowadays that that would be a problem. It doesn't do anything bad to the people that are watching it. It only makes Riddler presumably smart. Here's what I got out of it, is that it actually turned the viewers into zombies. Like, he could only access their intelligence when they were plugged in, and it would just make them stare mindlessly at the box. It's a very ham-handed 1950s TV metaphor. Yeah, and you're only going to get the brainwaves of couch potatoes anyway. I mean, if you really want to be smart, you need to, like, suck it out of Mensa conventions. I mean, to watch couch potatoes, that's not going to get you any far. The plot seems half-baked. You know, I feel like they were onto something. It was kind of remind me of the way Joker poisoned the products or Shrek had kind of tainted Christmas with commercialism. I like those jokes. I think Burton could have found in this storyline the real script. But as it is, it's muddled and half-assed and he's only half the story anyway. So we're agreed they should have thought outside the box. But don't. <laughs> you should write the next movie, Arnie. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, what about Bruce Wayne? I mean, we've talked about his flirtation with Chase Meridian, and Bruce goes to Chase, presumably to talk about Two-Face, I guess, but really he's there to talk about his dreams. Yeah, now we get another origin story. Now we finally, in the third Batman movie, 
we get the actual why he chooses to become a Batman. I think that's actually kind of a cool choice. Oddly enough, it never was a problem for me in the first movie that he made the leap from you kill my parents to I'm putting on a bat. But it is an unanswered question, and we should eventually get to know that. Theoretically, yes, I'd like to know the moment that the light bulb went on and he said, yes, bats are it. And in theory, a psychologist a real one, preferably, not this souped-up kickboxer, would be the right person to help break it down. That said, Malaysian dream dolls? <laughs> I thought Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I went right back to Nancy. My nose got so acrid. I'm like, I smell shit so strong on this. I had to go look it up. I'm like, are there such a thing as a Malaysian dream doll? This can't be. Wiki cites Nightmare and Batman Forever for most of its research <laughs> on Malaysian Green Dogs. So I don't think this is real. And to the people of Malaysia, I am sorry that these two movies have defined your culture. Here's what's funny. I've had two Malaysian roommates, and this is more than I've learned about the culture from them. They wouldn't know anything about it. What? What are you talking about? A dream doll? No? I just went to bed. What may be, you know, slightly less offensive to what it's doing to Malaysians in this film is that it never comes into play. You use it to reveal Two-Face's inner psyche to him. You use it to stab someone. Like, you can't have this much time devoted to a doll. Even in Karate Kid 2, that's how Daniel learns to defeat the bad guys through this little doll that keeps showing up. Well, here's what they said. Malaysian dream dolls are half made of ebony and half made of ivory. They're just taking this from the movie. We don't know. In Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street 3, there was no ebony and ivory. And there's no <laughs> ebony anywhere in this movie. We've already covered that. All I'm saying is that they're establishing that if you want to solve Bruce Wayne's inner psyche schism, he needs a little bit of chocolate with his vanilla. So... <laughs> Why don't we get Black Robin? Yes, Marlon Wayans. Here's the thing about the whole dream thing, though. I have always liked the cave scenes, but even when I was watching this in theaters, I knew there was something missing here because there were scenes in the trailers of Bruce Wayne in a cave as an adult. And I'm like, something is up here. And it wasn't until now, close to 20 years later, that I finally have closure on this issue. The studio was so demanding that the cut come in under two hours, they cut an entire part of the subplot out. Oh, so he does stab someone with the Malaysian dream doll. <laughs> no, it's all about Bruce Wayne and why he became Batman. I mean, is it really enough that he fell into a cave, saw a bat, and that's what it took? There's a whole 10-minute plot about why he was running in the first place and fell into the cave. And what it was was his parents died, and he was looking through his father's diary. His father had kept a diary every day. And the last entry was, we'd rather stay home tonight, but Bruce really insists on going to this cartoon. Oh, I hate that. There was an episode of the Batman, the Brave and the Bold, which was a really good cartoon, but it pretty much led to the conclusion that Batman's parents were killed because he was a whiny brat. But this makes sense. If you watch the movie, there's that one scene later on where he's talking to Alfred. They're talking about Dick's parents and he goes, I killed them. And you're like, you killed who? Is it just he feels so guilty that Tommy Lee couldn't hear him over the crowds? Uh, that's how I took it. It's all about Bruce Wayne has guilt that not only were his parents killed, but if he hadn't insisted they go to the movie, then that would have happened. And he read that entry and went running and crying, and that's when he fell into the Batcave. And I think that 
adds so much more to the Bruce origin story than we get out of this that I think they should have cut 10 minutes of Carrie, not this 10 minutes. No, I agree. I kept wondering why they were focusing so much on this journal. And then the reveal is, well, he grabs it and runs and falls into the cave and sees a bat. Like, why do we need the journal to get into the cave? I really wondered why we were looking at this book. At first, I thought it was like, the guest book that people sign at the funerals. <laughs> the Joker actually signed his name. He showed up to the funeral in secret. <laughs> I really did wonder about the book. And when I finally saw the scenes, I'm like, this answers so many questions. Yeah, that does help. I would have liked a little bit more patronage to the actual psychological torture. But that's Burton, right? I mean, that's what Burton always saw in this. A tortured, tormented figure. That was his deal. They're trying to get rid of that. They don't want that Batman. They're here to solve that problem and move him into Batman 66 camp. Schumacher can't wait to do that, you know, and I feel like every time that they short skirt what Burton established, it's not a good thing. I really wish that they had spent more time on that story and not just a Malaysian dream doll flashback. I mean, I feel like that could have been woven into the story much better. And it was throughout. I mean, it wasn't just a couple of scenes. It was an ongoing thread, a lot of which is still left in the movie in many ways. But we'll get to another bit a little later that was the other major scene taken out of this. But first, we haven't talked about Chris O'Donnell yet. Time to go to the circus. Chris O'Donnell, I'm going to just go out there and say it. I was so happy when I found out he was Robin. I was a Chris O'Donnell fan. What had he done? I had no idea who this guy was. (laughs) Son of a woman. I knew him from Son of a Woman of course, it was really the Three Musketeers that sold me on him. (laughs) Okay. I was a big Three Musketeers fan. It's kind of the Joel Schumacher connection because we have both Kiefer and Christopher O'Donnell in Three Musketeers. I thought he had the right energy and he was about my age at this point. I was 20 years old when this came out. He was 25. I was real happy with this casting choice when it was announced. You know, they were flirting with the idea of making it Leonardo DiCaprio or Marky Mark. Or Ewan McGregor or... Here's the one that gets me. Christian Bale was up for Robin. Huh. That could have changed history forever. It certainly would have. He wouldn't have gotten the Batman and Nolan. That would have just done it right there. But, you know, there's lots of better actors that could have wound up with Robin. But I think you're right, Arnie. I think for this style of movie, this is the Robin that you need. Puckish, you know, there's just nothing heavy about him. Leo is heavy. Leo brings psychosis. Batman's already tortured enough. We need somebody that makes rebellion look fun. And O'Donnell does that. Of all the things that are wrong with Batman Forever, I would say the best thing, the trickiest thing they had to do, they got right. The introduction of Robin, all of this for me, I think it works pretty well. I got called out for being an easy carny way <laughs> in Ghost Rider. And now you're saying this is the way to go. Bring in the circus. What I'm saying is if you want to bring in the idea that Batman gets a partner, which, you know, is fraught with the whole how do we handle the gay subtext of all of that. The way to introduce it is to have him mirror the story of Bruce Wayne as a child and Wayne can guide his vengeance mission in a way that allows him to be free. I think that's good storytelling. I think that is helpful. That Two-Face kills his parents at the beginning of this and that Batman helps him become Robin so that he can get Two-Face. I'm down. Okay, I thought you were saying you were down with Christopher O'Donnell's performance and his casting here because I have to say, of the whole cast, watching it this time, he's my weakest link. 
I think he's really painful to watch in this. I was having flashbacks to Blade, where when the movie came out, I was so, yes, yeah, Steven Dorff! And now I'm like, God, what a little spoiled punk this guy is. Oh, really? Is. You don't like Steven Dorff now? Did I do that for you? Awesome. No, I did that for myself, and I was saying that back in the Blade podcast, that as a kid, I'm like, yeah, rebellion, yeah, you're angsty, yeah! And now I'm like, what a punk, what a jerk, and that's kind of how I feel about Chris O'Donnell in this one. I think that's good, though. I think that that's right. You don't want an angsty, heavy, truly tortured person. I mean, I think that Chris O'Donnell, while not a great actor, and certainly doesn't have the future resume of any of the people that we listed that were up for the part, I think that he works in this style, in this flashy, superficial Joel Schumacher way. I think he's fine in the part. I actually think the Batman and Robin, Kilmer and O'Donnell team is acceptable, even if their adventure isn't. I just find him way too one-note in this, and I'm going to go out on a limb and preview the next one. I think he's actually the best part of Batman and Robin, so he improved. <laughs> I don't know that he improved. I think everything sank into the earth. How can you say he's too one-note in this? Everyone's one-note in this movie. Yeah, even exactly. Two-Face is one-note. <laughs> Oh, come on, he's at least a chord. No, I don't think that it's a great performance, but I think that it's fun. I mean, he gives the movie a new energy. Up to this point, I feel like it has been people chewing up the scenery. And when Robin comes into this, I don't know, it, it flips things. I mean, his over-the-topness doesn't feel like he's trying to steal the spotlight. It just feels like silly teen rebellion. And that's... I don't know. It's nice to have something else to focus on rather than a shrieking ham. And furthermore, I think he really embraces what Schumacher wants to do with this more than anyone else. I think Carrie's doing his own thing. He's being Jim Carrey. Tommy Lee Jones, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Chris O'Donnell, he's trying to pick up hose in the Batmobile and doing laundry karate. I think he gets the movie he's in. That was the biggest laugh. I do remember watching that in the theater. The biggest laugh is him stealing the Batmobile and using it to go pick up chicks. That's so relatable. That's so what we would do if we had, you know, had become Batman, you know, that is a well-earned scene. And that does make me like him when we get to see that side of him. I think that's fun. I do like that. It just, it feels like they hold his note too long. Everybody else is at least a fun presence. He is just such a sour note. And also watching it this time, he's too old for the part they give him. The dude's 25. He looks 25. He's too well built to play under 20 by any means. I'm sorry. If you're 25 and your parents die, get a job. <laughs> Thank you. Batman, Bruce Wayne, is straight up trying to abduct. This, you know, talk about gay subtext. This isn't a 12-year-old that he's adopting. At the closest we could get to figuring out his age, Dick's like, should I go by Batboy or Nightwing? And Batman says, how about Dick Grayson, college student? So he's at least 18 here, and Bruce Wayne's trying to adopt him? He looks way over 18. I'm sorry. There's nothing about him that comes off boyish, as in, I can't buy liquor. No, I agree with you on that. There's no doubt. And I don't even know that it's playing in that way. I have my own questions about that with Burt Ward, but, you know, he definitely has a more youthful vibe and playing off the older Adam West. Yeah, the difference between O'Donnell and Kilmer only feels about six or seven years. But I didn't necessarily see that the character was supposed to be 15, 16. 
16. You're saying it was 18? Batman says, how about you go by Dick Grayson, college student? So I got to figure that's 18 minimum? Yeah, I don't understand that. I'll agree with you. <laughs> the idea that that should have never been in there. It should have never been, you're living with me now because the circus has gone to Metropolis. I mean, if anything, that's a reason to run away to the circus, right? No, they should have found a different way of having these two initially meet and get together. I think that was the poor choice. But I don't want a younger one. Let me say it that way. I would hate to have, you know, some sitcom Vanderbeek or something like that coming in as Robin. I mean, we don't want a prepubescent. We don't want a child Robin. I think that that would be really awkward. One of the things they in theory, at least did right, was to have this conflict where Robin wants revenge and Batman's there to teach him to control that rage, to channel mm-hmm. it in the right direction. My problem is, is that we just saw two films where Batman chuckles when he sticks bombs in people's belts. We're getting mixed messages here. Batman even drops a line that once you kill him, it's not going to solve anything. It's only going to make it worse. I mean, maybe he did learn something from killing the Joker in that first film, that killing people isn't the way. It's a weird storyline to go if you're taking all three of these in continuity. You know, here's actually how I took that, though. It wasn't that Batman believes that what he's doing is wrong. It's that he wants to go it alone. He believes he can only be Batman by isolating himself from everyone. That, you know, none of his relationships work out. He has no friends. Hell, he has only one manservant in that giant complex. God knows how Alfred gets it all done. But I really get the sense that his persecution complex, that he can have no one to know his secret. And that it's really about him letting Robin in and trusting him. Or at least that's how it plays best to me. Because otherwise, it does seem highly hypocritical for him to say, you shouldn't do this. Meanwhile, I'm going to work out my problems and keep doing this. I think it was hypocritical. And I think all the scenes with Alfred make it seem even more hypocritical when Alfred's basically calling him a hypocrite. He's like, it doesn't do much good to try to dissuade people from this course of action. You should know. Right. I mean, all of this is hinging upon good writing and how they solve the battle. How does Two-Face get put to justice. I mean, that's where the good writing is going to make the difference here. I mean... Are you still holding out for good writing? (laughs) No! (laughs) No, I am not! The very next scene should really drive it home, because in the middle of all of this, dare I say, drama, I think Schumacher's like, well, we've gone too long without action, so let's just have a random, completely no setup, just All of a sudden, Batman's fighting Two-Face's goons again and drives up a wall. Yeah, straight up Batman's cruising around and somehow Two-Face knows what street he's going to walk down so he could pull out a bazooka. (laughs) It makes no sense. We didn't get a sense. Is there a cutscene, Arnie, where Two-Face's goons drive him down this street, lead him to go down this road? Nope, not on the DVD anyway. I think, honestly, from the commentary, Schumacher had this groovy idea of the Batmobile driving up a building So they filmed it, and even though it had nothing to do with the plot, they cut out scenes that had to do with the plot just to insert this. I hate it. It's what I always refer to as the porno scene, where it's been too long since we've had a sex scene, so we're going to throw one in. They did this in Revenge of the Sith with Kashyyyk, and here it is. We've gone too long without something blowing up. We're going to blow stuff up, even if it doesn't aid the plot. And anything would have helped me, but this doesn't drive the story forward at all. When it's done, we are still at the exact same place at the beginning, which is a fatal error of an action scene. An action scene needs to change something. The stakes need to be different at the end than the beginning, and that never happens here. There are so many fights against Two-Face. This is our third fight against Two-Face, and we are only 
50 minutes into the movie. Arnie, come on. How is little Joey going to know to ask for the Batmobile with the little rope that comes out so he can reenact this scene that costs $10 more than the other Batmobile? I mean, th- come on. This is a commercial. You're two years too early for that, Jacob. This is not the case. They actually had trouble merchandising this one because of Batman Returns. Companies did not want in. And you know what? I'm fine with being commercially minded. You want to sell toys? That's fine. Drive up the side of the building? That's cool. But to your point, Arnie, you've hit it on the head. It's the antithesis of a great superhero movie, like I said about Iron Man, where they never had just a cheap fight to stimulate you or just a porno action scene where we're just going to show off our tricked up hoopty. I mean, this is really lazy storytelling. This is an incredibly bad script. And it's so bad, it makes me angry. I can even remember at the time looking around and watching people fall for it. It was angering to me to know that people were going to meet it at this level. They should ask more out of their entertainment. The previous two Batmans, whatever their flaws, never stooped this low to pander and be quote-unquote fun. That said, I gotta say, I mean, it's only when reviewing it for now playing that I'm like, why am I watching the third fight in 50 minutes? When I was watching this in theaters, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. The Batmobile just drove a building. It's like the 60s with tires. I think the biggest reaction that I saw out of the crowd was when he gets that cape thing going. That uh, There's a battle later where Two-Face has chased him down into uh, a subway or a sewer or, I don't know, it's underground and they light flammable gas and he throws his cape on. I remember there was a man that stood up and went, yeah, when it like (laughs) did whatever it did, Batman didn't burn and he comes running out of the flames. I mean, literally, that's a stand up and cheer moment. I mean, I'm horrified. You're right, Arnie. You've nailed it for me. These action scenes don't change the dynamic between the three players. Those remain constant throughout the entire movie. It's the same thing done again and again and again just to show off tricks on a belt. That blows my mind. I remember watching this again when it first came out and I was rolling my eyes. Like, whatever I said, how bad the writing might have been for Batman Returns and, you know, the darkness, at least... That had a sense of purpose. I have not gone back and watched Batman and Robin again, but this cannot be worse than that. I mean, this is really bad stuff here. And I'm wondering that all the people that hated on Batman and Robin, if they ever go back to this and go, you know what? This wasn't the fall from grace. This one's really bad, too. I'm going to say that you're talking to this person and I'm going to say it. this is much better much, much better, because we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, I mean, that's a conversation for next week, and I may eat my words, but in my mind, this is just as bad as Batman and Robin. It's not, but I have to say, I'm scratching my head a lot more than I remember doing previously. The very next scene after that, Riddler just strolls into Two-Face's home. And all I could think of is, if Riddler could just walk into Two-Face's home, Why doesn't Batman go and, like, punch him out and call it a day? Is he listed? They eventually say, I found you with the box, but the box wasn't even mass-produced then, so how did he find him with the box? Furthermore, when he walks in, he's just got two boxes sitting there. Like, he's got the little things you stick to your head that you would think only the Riddler would have, since he's sucking up the brain power. But no, they're just sitting on Two-Face's couch. Are they? Yes! He doesn't pull them out in a bag or anything like that. He just walks over to the coffee table and picks them up. 
He had to have brought him with. No. Well, that must be another cut scene. Go back and watch it. Maybe Sugar and Spice were the ones that sprung for it. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe that is how he found them. It's not the fact that he finds them. It bothers me that he'd want to collaborate because I thought he was the stalker of Bruce Wayne. This guy has put Bruce Wayne's life in danger. I mean, why is he rooting for him during the circus? Why is he wanting this guy to be destructive. There's no ally here to his cause. What it is is money. He thinks this guy can steal him money because nobody's going to legitimately invest. And if he steals money, then Nigma can mass produce and market the box. So the whole thing is he needs somebody with money and he can offer the box as a tool to get Batman. So it's, you know, just an ally of convenience. It has nothing to do with Bruce Wayne at this point other than I think Nygma doesn't want to kill Bruce. He wants to outshine Bruce. You know, he wants to be richer, famouser. I get all that, but this is important to stress. They do a crappy job of that. We needed to understand that the box was not a success until they stole the money to make it a success. All of a sudden, Nygma just exists and everyone is watching it in montage and we just understand it's the new phenomenon like TiVo or the internet or something like that. I mean, it just happens and there doesn't seem to be any connection between him running around with Two-Face robbing casinos and him becoming a upstart tycoon. You mentioned Leather and Lace. I feel that Debbie Mazar and Drew Barrymore deserve a moment of now playing time. They're sugar and spice. What did I say? Leather and Lace. Oh, crap. <laughs> I actually got that from bonus materials. That was their original name and Warner said that was too R-rated for a PG-13 movie. But Chase trying to f*** Batman the entire movie's not? Exactly. But yes, they were originally leather and lace, not sugar and spice. Oops. <laughs> I apologize for that. Gaffob. It's nice to see Drew Barrymore out of rehab. Which is what she was best known for at this point. But you know what? She has something. I mean, right here in this movie alone, you can see she's given more screen time than Mazar and you can see she's gonna make something of herself with that Playboy spread and honestly <laughs> uh, she's more appealing to me here i'd rather have leather and lace than chase sugar and spice i'll go with my way <laughs> <laughs> he wants the r-rated movie <laughs> well i don't want chase i mean that is a nightmare there like i said she should just be the fourth superhero cock tease. how do you chase a meridian they're pretty static right the prime meridian right <laughs> i mean you just go to it these girls should be fun you know they're obviously accessories to the schism that is going on in two-face if two-face were better developed we might see their interplay with him be more fun you know i think that that would be entertaining my problem is two-face is the exact same i never get that there's a calm side and a crazy side he's barking out of both sides of his mouth it's just one is a growl and one is his regular southern voice they can only be as good as two-face will let them and that's not very good so then they have that party where edward nigma shows off all his wealth party scenes very important in superhero movies this is where lots of things come together bad guys meet plans coalesce you know this is where riddler gets everything that he wants you know he's admired and stalked bruce wayne while he gets to have bruce wayne's brain they trick him with sugar thinking that she turned it off and that he can't be trapped in the machine with it on well she has a spare key and they find out his big secret i guess thinking about a single bat flying i I guess that's a giveaway that you're batman (laughs) the thing that gets me is i honestly even watching it this time knowing that at some point they find out his identity because right when bruce wayne finally steps into the box 
is when Two-Face decides, I guess, the coin flipped the wrong way. He's going to crash Nigma's party and rob people, and he blows up the box. I'm like, did they get the information or didn't they? I really wasn't sure. That was so confusing and counterproductive. Even Nigma's pissed off about that. I guess he flipped a coin and felt that was the way to go in with it. But that's the inscrutable quality about Two-Face. At the end of the day, he just seems to be chaos all the time. Plus, who could resist the press of... Gossip Gertie. I feel like that's your real throwback to Batman 66. Brucie! Oh my god. <laughs> I can't stand this character. I can't believe that they bring her back later. It turns out this is Bob Kane's real life wife. Oh, well, that's nice that she got to have a connection to her husband's iconic thing. Like, good for her, but I'm hardly going to cite this as the worst thing in this movie, but... I could actually say it's the worst thing in this movie. I think I could stand <laughs> on, on that, yeah. Oh, come on, Arnie. This same scene, not to hark on Neon again, but we have a Neon band with a Neon sax player. I, I got to figure that's some kind of tribute to the Lost Boys, another Schumacher film. Didn't the sax player have a shirt on? Because right there, that undermines any tribute. It just means... Schumacher likes sax. He did do St. Elmo's Fire, by the way. <laughs> yes, one of the few entertainers at this party that did have a shirt on. I thought you weren't supposed to have any sax before the fight. <laughs> Save it for the next film, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> what I did like, though, is when Two-Face breaks in, I was completely amused and had a smile on my face. Even this time, I forgot this scene happened, where Bruce Wayne runs out and goes, emergency, Alfred, and gets, like, a suitcase with a bat suit on. And then seconds later, Dick comes running out. Emergency, Alfred, and there's the leotards in the back. So we get Robin fighting crime in his 60s outfit. But here's where, again, like I said, Two-Face's performance really takes off. Now Two-Face and Riddler have a partner, and so we gotta get more Robin evolution. What about the neon gang that Robin goes out to fight? Or Dick, I guess he's not Robin yet. I like the scene up until that point. I like the idea that he's cruising a chick and that he gets in over his head. I don't know why it has to be garish day glow. I really, up until this point, have liked the lighting scheme. But to do this black light kind of stuff, the movie's losing me even on an aesthetic level at this point why are black lights all through their alley like that's not natural lighting no they hang out at the head shop a lot <laughs> that's fine if this is your aesthetic that's fine i guess again because i'm coming from those burton films this is a little bit of a shock not setting it up just saying hey here's the new aesthetic for these batman films it just doesn't make sense out of a film that doesn't make much sense throughout if you're gonna be a gang it's probably best not to be really shiny and bright it makes it hard to hide from the cops and break into things and steal stuff. Hey, as a fan of the 1979 classic, The Warriors, I have no problem with outrageous gang signs and colors and outfits. I mean, baseball furies, whatever. Yeah, I'll go with their crazy gang, whatever. I think the disappointment is they're here for just this one scene. They don't come back. There's no real payoff for them. Robin doesn't learn anything out of this other than Batman is a bigger celebrity than he is. I just feel like it's a wasted opportunity more than anything. I have to say that I honestly honestly thought from her voice and the brief appearance, the girl he rescued was Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, I thought the same thing. You know, none of these trivial things matter too much to me. You know what really burns me, though, is the fact that during all of this, Riddler has been dropping clues for Wayne to solve. That it's building towards some big identity mystery thing that is going to be a big reveal. This 
is Batman 66. No, this is worse than Batman 66. This is a riddle that plays no part in this film. It has no consequence. None. Zero. And they interpolate it in a way that Adam West would. I mean, you know, it is non sequiturs that are linked by the sheer willpower of needing to get the story to a close. I mean, I guess it all comes to head on Halloween. Did you guys know it was Halloween? What? <laughs> yep, it's Halloween. And oh, that's Bruce- right. Because there's the trick-or-treaters. Yes, Mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne is going to use this occasion to tell Chase finally that he is Batman, even though she's decided she doesn't want Batman. I don't know what she's going to do now. She'll probably leave him for Robin. But, you know, (laughs) he's going to do that big moment and Two-Face and Riddler, having knowledge that he is both Batman and Bruce, break into Wayne Manor to blow it up and leave their last riddle. I guess. <sighs> yes, this is where we get Jim Carrey doing multiple pelvic thrust, yelling joygasm, yelling spank me. Is it wrong that I like it? Yes, that is that is a big problem. Okay, well then, uh, call me wrong. And Why does the Riddler have bird bombs? He's not the Penguin. He's not a bird-themed villain. Does Schumacher like birds too? Well, possibly, but they're just little, like, joke things. He's... Big on the novelty items, I guess. I really think that would be more of a Joker thing than a Riddler thing, but we already said back in Batman 66 they're very similar. Redundant, even, is the word I used. Again, this is where it just starts pushing it too far. Here, we get the Riddler grabbing his crotch and, like, spitting, and we get cartoon sound effects, you know, spit hitting the bowl. and That is the one part where he's doing the pitcher thing and the music's going boop, 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 That's the one scene where I'm like, oh, boy, I wish they just hadn't gone that far. But without that, you know, you're going to go with the ride or you're not. You can either nitpick it or you can have fun. I'm enjoying the explosions with the pelvic thrusts. We've always talked about the subtext of sexuality in superhero films anyway. Why not make it over? I'm fine with it. I'm entertained. It's all I can ask for from Jim Carrey of this era. Believe it or not, I'm going to defend Cable Guy. I think he did it much better the next year in Cable Guy as a stalker with a sexual fetish and and television satire. I think all of this was handled much better, much darker and funnier in Cable Guy than it is here. I feel like this is the part where Riddler's going to reveal his last clue. He's got the upper hand. And we're going to find out everything that he's about. And it's not much. You know, when you add up a, a, what, a match, a chest pawn, clock, and vowels. I mean, this random assortment. All of this, we're to understand, is to take the first letter that translates into a number, which spells out Mr. E, which is both conveniently a pun and Mr. Ed Nigma. Which Enigma is also in itself a pun. <laughs> yes. Also, there's a big green gassy cloud going to an island. <laughs> The Riddler wears green. Did we need yeah. the riddles? Did we need the clues to where the Riddler was hiding out? That was my question. Is the mask hiding his identity? Did he not know that Ed wasn't the Riddler? I feel like maybe he didn't, but somewhere Frank Gorshin is pissed and saying, you know, my riddles meant something. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, Stuart, you just now were talking about the riddles. I'm like, oh yeah, there were riddles. 
Oh, yeah, they were put together at the end. I could not remember, as you were reciting it, what the hell the point was. What's even crazier is that at the beginning, the riddles are given to Bruce Wayne, and then one's given to Batman before they knew Bruce Wayne is Batman, and then one's given <laughs> back to Bruce Wayne when they know, like, this makes no sense. There's no logic here. I, I could go with stupid neon and blacklight gangs if there's some logic to explain it, and there's no logic in this film. It's just, here's some pretty colors. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I give up on Riddler as a character. Is up until this point, he kind of had this half-baked plot. I was kind of hoping he was going to pull it out. I knew Two-Face didn't have anything going. But once we find out that that's all it was, hey, I've just revealed to you who I am. Now you can come chase me to my lair. That's the biggest slap-the-forehead-duh moment of the whole movie. I'm like, all right, let's get this over. This is where that other cutscene I was mentioning comes in, because Bruce does get shot in the head during this raid. Really? Yeah, and he falls down, he's bleeding from the head, and Two-Face comes over to finish him off because a bullet in the head isn't enough, and that's when Jim Carrey goes, If you kill him, he won't learn nothing, which I think he got from Freddy in Freddy's Dead. I think it's about <laughs> the same thing. The Malaysian Dream Dolls, they keep ripping it off. <laughs> Schumacher really just wanted the Nightmare remake. But here it wakes up and Bruce has amnesia. What? He can't remember that he's Batman. Wow. He's not wondering what all that smoldering smoke coming from the basement is. Yeah. He and Alfred are walking through. And remember, by this point in the movie, he'd quit being Batman. He'd given up. That's why he was going to tell Chase is because he was like, I'm done being Batman because Dick Grayson has shown me that this is not the right path. And there's another cutscene where people of Gotham are calling for Batman to quit because they think he's bringing the supervillains. So the Gothamites don't want him. He's seeing Dick Grayson. He quit being Batman to be with Chase and just be Bruce Wayne. And then he wakes up, and that's all he is. And Alfred is giving him a tour of the Batcave. He's like, I remember all parts of my Bruce Wayne life, and this is all foreign to me. Okay, amnesia subplots that get introduced and solved in five minutes. Terrible. <laughs> Maybe that could work as a Act 2 storyline. I don't know. That's dicey. Amnesia is definitely obnoxious. But you're telling me that all of this transpired within a couple minutes? Yes. <laughs> well, that's why I got cut. That is just too stupid. Well, this is where you find out that the cave into which young Bruce fell is attached to the Batcave, and Alfred makes him walk in. It's kind of like Empire Strikes Back when Luke has to go into the cave to face his fears. In fact, it's just like that, because he goes in, and waiting for him is a giant bat that he has, like, a moment oh, with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. You know, a larger question about the cave. He also, at his Wayne Enterprises skyscraper, has a trap door that falls into a cave. Is all of Gotham built on a cave? <laughs> He was in that pod for a while. I like to think he has his own little subway tunnel. Oh, okay. Well, maybe. But yeah, he goes into the cave. He has his moment with the bat puppet. And then he walks out and he gets to give his Michael Keaton line. And it was cut from the film. I'm sure Val was pissed. He goes, I'm Batman. Well, they were right about one thing. We needed to have that moment where it finally clicked for him. And I think it would have been helpful if it had been helped solve with Robin. Robin is nowhere to be seen. Maybe he's out trick-or-treating. I have no idea where he's been. He ran away from home. He grabbed his leotards and left. He did? Yes, there's yeah. a brief scene in the movie of him packing the leotards on Halloween night. Maybe he wanted to go trick-or-treating, but he takes the leotards and leaves. And then for no reason given in either a cutscene or a scene scene, comes home and, hey, there's a red and green rubber robin suit for you. Alfred's a kinky bastard. You know why Alfred's a kinky bastard? 
I always thought it was the next movie that gave nipples to the suit. But when they do the close-up of R on Robin, he's got nipples. Oh, you see him earlier, too, on Batman when he goes to see Chase. And I would, you know, I get hard nipples when I was around her, too. That's not all that was hard when you were around her. The fact that it's fake rubber, how is that even appealing, though? It's not like it's a skin-tight suit and that these are their bodies. I mean, there's not even a turn-on here. We can all put on that garish rubber plastic. I don't understand if this is supposed to be sexing it up, how that actually works here. I like that in this movie, I don't think they called it out in the Keaton ones. But here, they call it out, you're wearing rubber. I mean, in the last one, they talk about body armor. Chase calls it out. You're wearing black rubber. Like, that is kinky S&M when you straight out call it out like that. Yeah, I think that the Catwoman Batman thing did it much better in, in a more sophisticated adult funny way. But, yeah, I, I guess that that's an attempt at comedy here. No more Batmobile. The cool car is gone. But at least he still has his Batplane and Batboat. And they really try, speaking of things that were done cooler in previous movies, they again have the bat plane fly in front of a full moon and oh just not the same feeling no they don't commit to it i thought are they going to try to recreate that scene no they just fly by the moon and why take two modes of transportation oh yeah so both can be shot down and you can sell two toys not this movie next movie i couldn't buy a bat boat i don't know i don't think so but next movie we'll talk about it this movie the toy companies weren't on board until very late and by that point they were already making figures for characters that weren't even in the movie. They weren't on board for this pre-production. But yeah, it does feel like it's just getting his gadgets out there. And again, both get shot down. And at this point, I'm just thinking Batman needs to stop making any vehicles that aren't mobiles because every other one blows up. Well, come yeah. on, the mobile already got blown up. That's true. It did. Twice now. Yeah, everything breaks here. And I guess he just has unlimited sources to keep replenishing it. Probably paid for by all the people that buy the action figures, and then we'll go buy the next one. I mean, it does feel like consumerism on display here. That's the real joke. That would have been great if they went that Watchmen path with that Bruce Wayne was rich making Batman dolls. <laughs> but holy rusted metal Batman! I think the joke should be attempted. I think they should have found a better way to implement it, but... Have you heard the script that we've been going through? <laughs> Wanted them to come up with something better? I honestly think that I like the way it's delivered. If the entire ending was about using the holy rusted metal to sink the fake island. The fact that he goes, the island is metal and it's full of holes and we never bring it up again. That's where it's disappointing. I just love Chris O'Donnell's enthusiasm when he delivers the line and Val Kilmer's just like, oh, oh. I, I do love Kilmer's <laughs> reaction. That is great because there's a joke being played on him. I go with it. It's a nice nod. It's They punk the audience. Yeah, it got a big reaction and I think that it should have been tried. And then Robin kicks the living crap out of two Two-Face and then vamps for the camera while Two-Face is about to fall to his death. But no, Robin goes, I'd rather see you in jail. I guess they need to do that. This is a comic book movie. They're not trying to create tortured characters. They're trying to excise all of the duality here. Robin needs to be the good guy. He can't kill for vengeance sake alone. That said, it's very obvious that he's walking into a trap by doing so. I wish that he had, you know, had the bat cuffs ready, but whatever. At this point, I'm starting to get tired of 
people hanging off cliffs and people falling, especially Batman and Robin falling because they have the batarangs. We know how every time they plummet will end. Oh, this ending is infuriating. You know, Batman, essentially, he's had to choose about his duality. Can I be Bruce Wayne? Can I be Batman together? And now here's the choice. You can have your love interest or your new partner. You know, you can have your normal life or you can have your guy that's going to help you fight super criminals and he must make this choice oh wait no he doesn't because they both fall down the same tube i was pissed about that when i was in my 20s it's extremely insulting you you have to make a choice if it's an impossible choice you need to show him find some clever way to supersede that and rescue both otherwise this makes no sense i don't know why you're asking for cleverness right before this scene we see him destroy the box and how does he destroy it he just throws a battering at it and for some reason has sonar detector eyes to do i don't know hey arnie i gotta ask when they destroy the box they do some visual effects with jim carrey and his head wobbles and it essentially means that not only will he not be taking people's minds anymore and he may actually be crazy or brain damaged i'm wondering in any version of the script or any other scene, did he die? Some scanners kind of stuff should have happened. Never, never. In fact, Schumacher wanted to make a very kitty-friendly film where Batman didn't kill anyone. He won't even commit that Two-Face dies after that huge fall. What? Yeah, he goes, well, he might have come back. We don't know he's dead. That's not in the film, though. All we see in the film is that he's collapsed at the bottom and it's a hand sinking in between watery rocks i mean he fell some distance but we don't see a body we didn't see it land we don't know what state he's in when he got to the bottom he should be dead but if they really wanted to bring in more tommy lee jones yeah i guess they could have done that but who the hell wanted that i always took it that he dies and what i love because it's batman two-face you gotta flip your coin and then he just throws a bunch of coins at him from his bat coin purse and two-face loses his balance and falls and and so basically batman kills two-face and i love how pissed off robin looks like he's <laughs> you just told me the last hour and 45 minutes i can't kill this guy and now you kill him you take that moment away from me. like look at his face in that scene he is pissed i actually took it all a different way i took it that batman just intended to stymie two-face it was two-face's choice to reach for the coin lose his balance and fall And when I'm reading Chris O'Donnell's face there, I feel like it's satisfaction, like vengeance for film. He wasn't pissed that Batman did it. He was happy that that base desire to see Two-Face burn was fulfilled. He was trying to take the high road, but happy that the low road hit. And he has no story arc that way either. Like he doesn't learn his lesson either interpretation. This ending is a letdown, not only because I think the action is bogus, and not only do I think because they cheat and just have Batman have obvious solutions to problems that should be tougher, but this was all hinging on overcoming the psychological torment, that Batman had to become Batman cohesive that Robin had to be cohesive, that they were going to forge this new relationship and not be tortured anymore. That's the point. Tim Burton is gone. Dr. Burton is going to work on crazy Jim Carrey at Arkham Asylum. But these guys, they're ready for the next level. They're ready for something new. And I just don't think that's been achieved here at all. I mean, I feel like I was so with this part of the story working, and even that is a letdown in the end. So Jacob Stewart, flip a coin. Do you recommend Batman Forever? 
Jacob. I don't need to flip a coin. I'm not two minds about this film. My problem with this film is that it doesn't know what to do. I really feel it wants to transition itself from the Burton, dark, noir aesthetic, creepy, to this lighter, friendlier, kitty version. More commercial. They want to sell Happy Meals again. And I'm not against that. I talked about it way back with X-Men 3 The Last Stand. I feel that's a very commercial film, but it was my favorite out of those films. It's the one I watched the most besides X-Men First Class. But it doesn't work here. There's no inherent logic to the storytelling. I could go with neon Tommy guns. I could go with crazy cackling Two-Face if there's reasons for it in the story. But Schumacher doesn't care about the story here. We discussed that. He cares about the pretty colors. And there's just so many of the performances here that great on me. Jim Carrey. I like Jim Carrey before this film. Val Kilmer. I couldn't stand here. So for me, I know I, there was a reason I have not revisited this since it first came out. I'm sorry that I had to revisit it again this time. I, I, I wish I hadn't. This is a strong, strong not recommend. Batman Returns. Can I go back and recommend that one? Because I kind of really like that one now that I've seen this. <laughs> I can appreciate what Burton was doing. He has a vision. I said it before. He's a wacko, but he's committed. This, though, is just a mess. A pretty colorful, splattered mess, but I can't make heads or tails of it. Not recommended. Stuart? I'll be brief. If I could tell my old self in 1995, just be brave. Stay cool. Don't go to the movie theater. It's just not worth it. Even in the middle of brownout heat wave where you're dying, it's it's just not worth enduring. They've ruined this. Everything about this is boorish, over-the-top, screeching, obnoxious. And the few things that I did try to glom onto here ended up disappointing me. The relationship between Batman and Robin, I thought they might pull that out. Nope. The commercial satire with Jim Carrey and his box. Nope. That's all for nothing either. I mean, even doing half Burton, you don't have much. I mean, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Tim Burton's vision wasn't perfect. It lacked in action. It got a rather sulky hero, but at least I could endorse it. This is the first Batman movie that I say absolutely no way. And again, I wonder, is it going to be that much worse than what we get next week? I, at this point, can't believe that it would be. Strong not recommend. I walked out of this movie once again a Batman fan when I watched it in 95. I was really excited for Batman once more. Watching it now, I feel like Tommy Lee Jones. I'm of two minds with this movie. On the one hand, I disagree strongly with some of the things you guys say. I think you guys are basically being sticks in the mud about some of the good in this movie. Some of the things you guys cite as negatives, I think that it's because you don't want to like them. It's like there's so much about this movie you don't like, you can't go for the ride that would make Tommy Lee Jones' performance fun. The worst thing in the movie, still. Hey, I'm the only one that liked Chase in this film. I'm willing to go with some of it. I cited liking Robin. You're wrong, Arnie. We have not given it a universal pan. No, but the things you've panned are things that I can't agree with the panning of. The things you both just cited as part of your not recommends are things that we've discussed here, and I just completely disagree. I think there's a lot of fun in this movie. I think this movie is fun from beginning to end. Jesus. That said, I feel like in order to fully enjoy this movie, I need the box. Because I need some implant that will make the other half of my brain stop screaming how insanely stupid this movie is. I'm having a good time with the performances. 
I'm having a good time with the music, the visual style. I love the score of this, from Flaming Lips to Offspring. I mean, the soundtrack and the score so work. It's an audio-visual masterpiece. <laughs> God, the script is so goddamn dumb. I'm so torn. Can I recommend a movie this stupid? Can I not recommend a movie this brave? Brave? <laughs> I am on the edge of my seat. You're up on the trapeze, flipping. No net below. No safety net here. Go for it. Recommend. Whoa! So for those keeping track, I just want to be clear. (laughs) Batman 66, no. Batman Returns, no. Batman Forever, yes. Correct. I stand by it because I will never watch Batman Returns again. I will never watch Batman 66 again. Uh, I will watch Batman Forever if it comes on. Wow. No, uh, Batman never. Never. <laughs> not forever. This one's a strong network. And we're just on opposite ends of the post. And what's weird is I didn't think we were that far apart when we were talking about it. But now I'm hearing Brave Masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> this is really Tron Legacy all over again where we agree <laughs> the entire show and yeah. come out with two different opinions. Yeah, wasn't that horrible? Oh, you loved it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I agreed with all of your points about the plot and the nonsensical bits of it, but I can't deny that this was a fun ride. And you're right, Jacob, when you cite Tron Legacy, that is the closest time before this that I can just say I was so struck by the visuals and the mood that I was able to write off a week's story and just take it more as an audiovisual piece of art instead of as a storytelling device. Wow. I imagine the novelization of this must really suck. Who's doing that on Books and Nachos? (laughs) Not me. me. (laughs) But the movie? Yeah, I went with it. I had a good time. I can't not recommend it on that reason. It's not a very strong one. You guys know I'm right there. It was a coin flip. But the coins came up heads, and I'm going to recommend it. So just to close it up here, who are you crediting for the coin toss flipping over? Who has delivered what you want that is impressing you? It is very much style over substance, which is what I hate about Joel Schumacher as a man. If I ever met him, I'd want to punch him because he repeatedly makes movies that I like in spite of themselves. I actually see the flip of version of that. He takes interesting concepts like flatliners and makes horrible movies out of them. I feel like you guys like Lost Boys. I don't think I would like that movie if I returned to it. I feel like there are things that I want to like and I'm ready to embrace. And almost consistently, universally, I can't think of one film he's ever made that I didn't hate. And I can think of several that I didn't hate, but so many of his movies I should have loved. Unfortunately, he is so much about style and so little about plot that he prevents me from loving his work. So you like it, but you really want to love it, is what you're saying. Right. If there had been a coherent plot, not even a great plot, a coherent plot, I could have loved this movie. Wow. Okay. But anything that came out of people's mouths was just babbling nonsense. Yeah. All right. Well, we can agree on that. Kiva Goldsman's screenplay is the absolute pits. And I think that's what I responded to most. You can do whatever you want with the lighting. You can give me a Batmobile that drives up the side of the wall. At the end of the day, if you hand me this garbage and say it's a story, I'm going to slap you in the face. So that's just the way it is. I completely agree with you. The story sucks. And usually I'm the story guy, which is why when 
when I choose style over substance, it probably seems like whiplash. It's very rare that I do, but this is one of those rare cases that I'm like, I'm just too taken with the vision. And Schumacher, this can blow up in my face. Not his, but mine. Phantom of the Opera is the epitome of where he goes overboard and starts preferring to spend his time painting people in gold body paint instead of making a good movie. Oh, wait. Phantom of the Opera is? I thought that was next week. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget, Akiva Goldsman and uh, Schumacher, they will be returning, not Kilmer. Uh, A lot of these players do disappear, but O'Donnell and the script writer and the director all decide that there's more here. And Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. Although he may not live through it. God knows I might not either. Before we get there, guys, we do have another podcast for donors. Yes, as of this recording, I have not seen Prometheus, but if you click on the donation button and pay $10, I have. <laughs> and you can finally <laughs> hear my thoughts on the most anticipated movie of the year. By a hair. I mean, I really want to see Dark Knight Rises, but I gotta say, if I could only see one movie in 2012, it's Prometheus. So go and dig up that change. You just listen to Batman forever. I know it's worth more than that. I mean, find it in your heart and listen to Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Prometheus. It might be the wisest 10 bucks you ever spent. And if you go above and beyond and donate $25 or more, you also get Jacob Stewart and I reviewing the three Spielberg movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and War of the Worlds. We need your donations in order to keep going. If you read the Fox article about us, you know it's your donations and your feedback and your support. It keeps the website operational. So please head to NowPlayingPodcast.com, click the donate button, and get our thank yous. But as for Batman, will Stuart survive to the end of the Batman retrospective series? Will Arnie go against Grain and recommend another Schumacher film? Will Jacob hit Arnie for recommending a Schumacher film? <laughs> Find out next week, same bat day, same bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Batman movie retrospective series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> you can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! 
You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate our fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. Which is your day now? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. When does a story that sells a lot of toys become runner-up to a toy story? When it's... <laughs> Am I supposed to answer? <laughs> if you'd like. <laughs> I kind of know. Bruce takes in the new dick. I'm sorry. Bruce takes in newly orphaned dick in a... Bruce takes in new... Bruce takes dick. <laughs> I know, he's trying to get that one in. I'm trying not to get the dick in, okay? Well, just say young Grayson. <laughs> well, actually, the problem is the word in. I keep saying in earlier when it needs to go in later. I don't even know if we're talking about the plot anymore. <laughs> we're just going to show off our tricked up hoopy. Hoopty. I'm hoopy. <laughs> All right, that's a blooper. <laughs> <laughs> Butt puppet. What? Bat puppet. <laughs> well, he does show his ass in the suit up scene, but I wouldn't call it a. What'd you call it? A butt puppet? What? A butt puppet. <laughs> Is that what you call it? 